Welcome to OAC Vancouver's podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We believe that Jesus is needed and relevant for people in Vancouver today. The message of God's love and promise of wholeness was destined to be experienced within a faith community that worships, studies scripture, and prays together. We warmly welcome you to journey with us towards greater connection, purpose, and peace. We'll be sharing our recorded services and conversations with health and wellness experts. Enjoy. Here we are at the one-year mark, the one-year anniversary of when this global pandemic was declared. And we have experienced such a generational shift, a cultural shift around the planet due to the impacts of COVID-19. And at the very least, it has tested our patience. I, for one, am struggling with this pandemic fatigue, but of graver concern is that it has also tried our faith. It has also tested our hope. And so as we also approach another significant milestone, the anniversary of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, we're going to take the next three Sabbaths to examine a trajectory of hope through the lens of Jesus' human experience from death to ascension. Now today we're going to be looking at what I call the mystery years of Jesus, those 30 years of obscurity where we have very little indication in scripture as to what was taking place in his childhood and youth. And next week we're going to focus on the ministry of Jesus, three very significant years of active traveling ministry where he calls his disciples and where he's starting this movement to the final three days, which we will celebrate Easter weekend where we see Jesus Messiah magnified through his placement on the cross and his placement in a tomb. From the Garden of Gethsemane to the the Garden of the Grave, we will look at, at just how significant those moments were and it will be i think richer for you if you spend the next few weeks really contemplating uh, the life and the humanity of jesus i think it is incredibly remarkable that someone so revolutionary so life-changing so world disrupting i mean the entire course of human history was pivoted at the arrival and ministry and death of Jesus. And yet he came from such obscurity. So I think there's a significance as we especially compare who are the influencers today. We see that they typically come from families of means, of celebrity or wealth, and that they're well networked, that they leverage extraordinary talent, charm or beauty. And yet Jesus was able to create this momentous shift out of nothing, coming from seemingly nowhere. You know, the last, in the 2000 years ago, this concept, which we uh, know today as the, the great American dream, this possibility that you could come from nowhere and become something incredible and great, 
was not known in Jesus' time at all. This idea, this fantasy that you could rise above your birth status, your class and your circumstances, it couldn't even be imagined. You know, power and prestige were such a luxury that it was controlled and tightly protected. What we learn about Jesus through this void or this mystery of his early life, I think it can actually be quite a source of inspiration and hope to us. It also bears to us, I think, a message of caution. You see, the moment that sin had corrupted this planet through Adam and Eve's rebellion, they were given a promise that a Messiah would come, that a Messiah would be born to humanity to rescue them from this sin-sickened condition. And so even with the arrival of their firstborn child, their son, they bore sort of a hope and an anticipation and expectation that could this be the one? And tragically, he was not. He turned out to be a murderer of his own brother. And so decades passed, centuries passed. Adam and Eve went to their grave, not seeing the fulfillment of the promised one. Then millennia would come and go, and still the Savior was not born. But yet, even though the years and the generations even passed, God kept hope alive. It was rekindled every time a prophet would speak. They would also reveal a little bit of a hint, drop a clue as to the identity of this Messiah and the timing of his arrival on earth. But it got to a point where there was silence. Even the voice of the prophets ceased. And for 400 years, they were without renewed hope. It was as if they were living in the time of Ezekiel who said, the days will be prolonged and even every vision will fail. Every vision of hope, it seemed to be fading. Yet, though they were few in number, there were still a faithful people, a faithful remnant, if you will, amongst the nation of Israel that kept alive, clung to the hope that was given to their forefathers, clung to the hope that was given to their great, 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 great grandfather, Abraham, who was told and, and, and revealed that even though his family would go through 400 years of oppression under the Egyptians, that there would be a day where they would be led out with great possessions. And now here we have history repeating itself 400 years in silence under increasing Roman oppression, under increasing Roman rule, where their own uh, power and leadership and was waning, their own influence over their people, their own significance as a nation was seemingly being snuffed out. And yet we're on the precipice of that moment where they would be emancipated again and liberated by the greatest treasure, the greatest prize of all time, the arrival of their Messiah. You know, God never presents just bad news. He always couples it with a promise of hope. And in uh, Genesis, we find him doing that to 
Abraham and throughout the Old Testament prophets, we see this renewed, the promise renewed to his people. And the Bible tells us when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son to redeem those who were under the law. Finally, the right time had come and now nations were united under one government, one language. Uh, they were literate, literate in one common written word and Jews that had been dispersed and scattered in the surrounding regions would come back to Jerusalem annually to celebrate their special feasts and they would disperse. This was prime time for the Messiah to come so the good news could be spread to all people. And at this time, it's important to note that primitive religious systems were losing their favor and their hold on people as education uh, and exposure to deeper thinking was shared they started to see through the pageantry and the superstitions and they longed for a religion that would speak to their hearts. These souls that were perplexed and sorrowful, they desired a new light. They desired a knowledge of a living God. So steadfast, they held to the promise given to their fathers, a promise that said, I'm gonna pour out my water on to thirsty souls. I'm gonna flood the dry lands. To those who live in darkness, I will shine a bright light. And any who accept it will go out with joy and gladness. There were many signals, there were many indicators that the time of the Messiah had come. Not only had a priest, Zechariah, received a miraculous indication, had, an, had a supernatural experience in the temple, that his own son would be the forerunner, the prophet uh, that would speak to the arrival of the Messiah. His own wife welcomed in her cousin Mary, who told about her miraculous uh, conception and an angel's message that she bore the child of God, even though she was a virgin. Then we had all of these prophecies fulfilled that not just he was born of a virgin, but that he was to be born in the city of David, of Bethlehem, and that kings from other nations would come to honor him while his own received him not. There on the plains, on the hills of Bethlehem, where a young David had sat tending his own sheep, communing with God, singing praises to God, uh, believing in the promises of God. News of the great shepherd came to those who were watching their flocks that still silent night. And to kind of uh, assuage their expectations and assumptions that this deliverer would be some mighty king, some powerful, victorious individual who had the means to overthrow their Roman overlords, the angel had to caution them and said, this is a sign. You're going to find this baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, scraps, remnants of disposed garments, and he's going to be laying in a manger. This was the biggest hint or clue to the humanity of Jesus, the experience of Jesus, that he was not born into houses of prestige and wealth. He was not brought into royal courts, but that he was born to the humblest, 
poorest family, Galileans, who at the time of Jesus' dedication could not even afford the proper sacrificial offering, but gave an offering accessible to the poorest of parents. Pigeons, turtle doves, is what they offered, indicating their most humble and lowly status. From the manger to the cross, Jesus' life was one of fellowship, of human poverty and human suffering. His example was a call to self-surrender and sacrifice from even the moment of his birth. You know, these reports of the shepherds and, and um, the rumors of these wise magi from afar to worship a newborn king would have certainly circulated, been circulating amongst the Jewish community. And yet it speaks to the arrogance and pride that was cultivated in the hearts of the priests and the rabbis and the Jewish leaders, that they had no space to entertain the idea, the concept, the notion that God would surpass their position, their privilege and their power, and speak instead to lowly shepherds and uncircumcised Gentiles. They couldn't reconcile the cognitive dissonance that they as sort of a chosen position in their, in their heightened state of leadership would be not the first to receive this message. And yet all the signs were presented to them, but they refused to accept and acknowledge an interpretation other than the one that was self-serving and self-cultivated. While God was opening the doors to the Gentiles, the Jewish leaders had been closing the doors for themselves. Herod, the Roman puppet king, was threatened by the news that this infant in Bethlehem could be a future king of the Jews. And he ordered the slaughter of all baby boys in Bethlehem. Thankfully, Joseph had been warned to take his family and flee to Egypt. So Jesus' childhood, he knows the experience of being a refugee, of fleeing for his life, of the early childhood trauma that that would have stamped on his psyche and his family dynamic. After Herod's death, Joseph thinks he should bring Jesus back to Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy, but an angel leads him to instead the safety of Nazareth. In this town of Joseph's birth, of his family, it fulfills another prophecy that the Messiah would be known as a Nazarene. Now, Galilee was under control of Herod, but there was a mix of of foreign inhabitants in Nazareth. And so it would offer a bit more safety, less uh, threat. If there was murmuring among the Jewish population, it would not be seen as having a, a majority impact. So it provided a relatively sheltered space for Jesus to grow up and learn about his true identity. You know, the childhood and youth of Jesus was spent in a little mountain village. It was insignificant, except that it was 
had a reputation for sort of harboring a lot of nasty individuals. This would be considered the ghetto or the backwaters of the Jewish nation. And aside from his first visit to the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus was self-taught in the Torah. He did not attend the synagogue schools where the rabbis were more fixated on the letter of the law, on superficial ceremonies, rule keeping and rites and rituals. In fact, Jesus was, you could say, homeschooled. His mother was his primary teacher and the reading the scrolls of scripture himself. He often retreated into nature's settings, which is where uh, we see him influenced to speak in his ministry, using the lessons of nature heavily in his parables and his teaching that would connect to the people of the land, the poorest and the simplest uh, citizens of Judea. In Jesus' quiet and simple life, even in the silence of the scriptures regarding his early years, we find an important lesson. The more quiet and simple a child's life, the more simple and quiet we can create uh, space and protect in our own lives, the more distance from sort of artificial excitement and imposed paradigms the more in harmony with nature that we could place ourselves, the more conducive it is to our physical health, our emotional health, and our spiritual health. This was a key element in preparing Jesus for his significant ministry. Nature was the place of his education and his inspiration. Jesus is our example, not just for three years of his life, but Jesus was meant to be our example throughout his entire life. And too often, I think we focus on his public ministry, the accounts of his adulthood, while we overlook his childhood and youth. Our Savior condescended into poverty that he might teach us how closely and how humbly we ourselves will draw near to God and need to walk with God. He lived to please, to honor, to glorify his Father in things common to all of our lives. He began his work in a humble trade, as a humble tradesperson, as a craftsman who would toil and labor for his daily bread. He was doing God's service just as much when he was laboring at the carpenter's bench as when he was working miracles for the multitudes. If uh, Jesus had appeared to be arrogant and boastful, he would have made no inroads at all with the Jewish leaders. But we see even as a boy of 12 in the temple, his interaction, his dialogue, with the teachers is respectful and he uses the skill of an art of questioning, of proposing thought-provoking questions to disarm them in their arrogance and to recognize the profound insights and the new perspective on these very scriptures. 
You know, for 18 years after he understood his own identity and recognized he was the son of God, he knew there was a tie that must bind him to his family in Nazareth. And he performed all the duties of a son, a brother, a friend, and a citizen with humility, with obedience, with grace. As Jesus had been uh, separated from his parents on that a tremendous pivotal trip to Jerusalem for three days where his mother was in great distress. We also see an early foreshadowing, an early uh, indication of the three days in which he would be separated from her on the cross and in the grave. And in that early moment in this early record, this almost singular record of Jesus' childhood, we have again a message of hope that we know he will be found after those three days. This isn't the end of the story. Jesus is not lost to Mary and he is not lost to humanity. Instead, we see an early promise captured that would again bring to Mary's heart and confidence and to those she told this story to the promise of hope in Jesus' victory and the conclusion of his true mission that he, while human, while in the most lowly, impoverished uh, state, well acquainted with the grief and suffering and hardship of humanity, that through all of that, he was about his father's business. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 tells us that it was for our sake that Christ became poor and it is through his poverty and sacrifice we gain the greatest riches. There were those in Jesus' youth and life who tried to cast contempt on him because of his birth, speculating the indiscretions of his mother and they pointed to his childhood, his simplicity, his poverty with sneers and evil whispering. He was often uh, the brunt of bullying behavior by his half-brothers and the entire community for being an outlier, for being a weirdo, for being that homeschool kid who just sees and thinks and reacts differently. And yet they couldn't get under his skin. He had a supernatural patience and grace, even for his tormentors. He didn't retaliate when they were rough with him, but he bore every insult patiently. This was a discipline and a work that would prepare him for the ultimate insult of the cross. And through it all, he sought to inspire hope amongst the most downtrodden, the most dismissed in his society, setting before them an assurance that they were seen, that they were heard, that they were cared for and loved. Jesus was a healer of bodies and souls. He was interested in every phase of human suffering that came to his notice. And to every sufferer, he strived to bring some bit of relief. His kind words were often uh, a soothing balm. 
And no one could say that he had worked a supernatural miracle, but by his virtue, by the healing power of his deeds, his words, his compassion, the sick and the distressed were relieved by his presence, even in his childhood and youth, even before his official ministry began. This is the unobtrusive way in which he, he worked with people. He, it was why uh, the, at the launch of his public ministry, so many were already receptive and already quick to believe. In his childhood, youth, and manhood, Jesus spent many hours, many days alone, rejected, isolated. But in his purity and his faithfulness, he found strength and comfort from the Holy Spirit and God his Father. He knew unless he was devoted to this dramatic change, the principles and purpose in which he intersected the human race, that all would be lost. And so the burden on his shoulders, the weight on his soul, no one could really appreciate until our time where we look back with hindsight on just the brutal upbringing uh, of his youth, of his humanity. And it was for this intense purpose that he carried out the life designed for him, the life ordained for him by his heavenly father, that he truly could intersect the darkness with the light of God's love. And this is what I summarize the youth and childhood of Jesus is that even in the mystery years, we can see that he was drawing people to the light of God's love through the beauty of his character and not driving them by the force of his power or any abuse of prestige or outward appeal. This is the kind of God that we can worship and serve and rejoice in and trust in because of his very obscure and humble beginnings. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the humanity of Jesus. We thank you that this is a Savior well acquainted with our grief, with our struggle, with our poverty, with the hardship of life. And we thank you for the promise of hope that's revealed in these few snippets uh, and moments of his uh, early years, his first 30 years of life. Lord, thank you for um, establishing an example of a disciplined life, a nature-based life, uh, a studious life in your word. May we follow Jesus' examples and be inspired to also take more time to be in nature, take more time to learn directly from your scripture and your word and your teachings and learn directly from the life of Jesus, um, how we ourselves can find hope, joy, and peace and light in this ever-darkening world. We thank you for those blessings. We trust you will provide them in your holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to OAC Vancouver's podcast. Learn more at oacvancouver.ca. If you're in Vancouver, join us for worship Saturdays at 11 a.m. at 5350 Bailey Street. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. God bless you and have a wonderful day.